This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department just wrapped up its fifth year of full-scale financial statement audits. You won't be surprised to learn the Pentagon did not earn a clean opinion. No one expected that. But more disappointingly, there were very few signs of progress this year. In some ways, the audit problem has gotten even harder as DOD's finances see more and more scrutiny from independent auditors. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu joins me now to talk about why the DOD still is the only federal agency that has not been able to get that clean opinion. Jared, why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Maybe we should talk about exactly what happened um, this this past year, because it is a bit of a landmark after five years of, of doing this. You know, we should remember that DOD has been on this path for quite some time even prior to these five years of audits, but they spent a good 10 years trying to get themselves in in what leaders at that time were calling audit-ready condition, and then, again, five years ago, started actually subjecting the entire department to full-scale financial audits. And during that time, you know, there just has not been a whole lot of measurable progress. And the main ways that that auditors look to, to to see if you're making progress is, are you cutting down on the number of material weaknesses that you have across the department? And then the total number of notices and finding notices of findings and recommendations that they're giving out um, to, to the particular agency that's under audit. Those material weaknesses are, are issues that are so systemic and so sweeping that they, they create a serious risk that you could be overall misstating your financial results on your financial audit. As of now, DOD has 28 of those. Three were newly discovered just in this past year of audits. And, and, and technically, that would have brought the number of material weaknesses across the department to 31. However, DOD management and the DOD IG's office kind of collectively agreed to consolidate three of the material weaknesses from past years into some existing categories. So they managed to keep the number at 28. But 28 is still a lot. Each one of those is, like we said, a, a, a very serious issue that's going to need remediation before DOD can, can get to a clean opinion. And you quote Mike McCord, DOD's comptroller and chief financial officer, as saying that uh, he wanted more progress, more than he saw. And he said, we are peeling off the layers. And as we get to the harder things, the progress is getting harder as well. That doesn't bode well for fast progress going ahead, does it? It does. And I think what we've seen, especially over the past few years of audits, is those notices of findings and recommendations, which are the individual recommendations that an auditor might make to an individual DOD component about a particular discrete problem. DOD is doing a good job of fixing those. They're, 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 they're taking care of several hundred of them every year. But the problem is auditors are finding brand new ones as they go in and kick over more rocks at basically the same rate or an even faster rate than DOD has been able to fix them. That's what we've been seeing consistently over the past several years. We don't have a total number of NFRs for fiscal year 2022 yet just because DOD, is a, DOD and its audit, auditors are essentially just still tallying all those up. And, and that's maybe part of the issue here is that while DOD is still figuring out how to go through this process, it's only got about six weeks, uh, you know, from the end of the fiscal year until the November 15th deadline when it has to report those results. So that's one of the challenges that the IG has pointed to in the, fa- in, the in the past that, um, that, that Congress might need to consider fixing. And how much of this is DOD procedures and policies and practice, and how much of it is because they have so many disparate systems where you have data integrity and data comparability issues that multiply as you add systems to a kind of central way of looking at them? Yeah, I think you'd have to say it's it's really both of those things, and, and I'll, I'll try and tackle each of them a little bit. The, the, the interfaces between systems 
is a huge issue and, and always has been. DOD has recognized that that's an issue for a long time. And part of the answer has been to try to migrate to more modernized and, and commercially developed financial management systems, these enterprise resource planning systems that that can, in theory, replace a ton of the legacy systems that DOD has been using for decades and decades and decades all at once. But almost no matter what you do in that ERP space, the department is so vast and complex that you're going to have interconnections between all all of these financial systems and mission systems. And that was actually one of the areas that was newly added as a material weakness in fiscal year 22. Um, the, the, The IG pointed out that There's about 60 different component reporting entities across the Defense Department, and and between those individual systems, there just are not enough assurances that the data as it passes through those interfaces is maintaining its integrity, which is obviously a crucial issue. And then, you know, the the disparate processes and and procedures across the department that you mentioned, that's a big issue, too, and and that's... um, you know, that's something that the IG has talked about um, in the past is that really the department needs not just a governance board, which it has, it's called the FIRE Governance Board, but sustainable business practices that can be implemented kind of department-wide rather than DOD just developing this financial guidance and giving the individual DOD components, the military services and defense agencies as much wiggle room and interpretation space to, to implement those in the way they see fit. The, the IG says that's part of what's making this sort of a, a, a very difficult to manage problem. Right. One possible answer would be, well, just take all of those disparate systems and let's just presume that if each one of those can be reconciled, then the whole thing must add up to reconciliation. But that doesn't really work either, does it? It doesn't really work because you, you come back to the you got to build the airplane while you're flying it problem, which is an, a, another reason this is taking so long, in addition to just the complexity in, involved in DOD. And, and, and we should say that there, there are some issues here that, from an outsider's perspective, look really, really basic. One of the big priorities that the department has had since the new administration came in, as far as these material weaknesses, one of the ones they really want to knock out first is what's called um, – is called fund balance with treasury, which is essentially just balancing your checkbook and making sure that what you think you have in all of your funds matches what the treasury department says you have in all your funds. They thought they were going to get that knocked out in 2022, but even after five years of audits, they're now pushing even just kind of that basic step back to 2025. So another sign there that that not nearly as much progress is being made here as as folks kind of hoped for when the entire system went under, went under audit five years ago. And Jared, you've been doing a lot of reporting on the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process reform effort, PPBE. Is that part of the issue here? Do those things connect? The complications of the way they plan, budget, and execute have anything to do with the ability to reconcile everything? I'm sure there are some interrelationships there. I mean, that the PPBE process requires DOD to, to plan and execute its budget in an incredible amount of detail, in much more detail than it would have needed to 30, 40 years ago when it had much broader line items in its budget. Congress and DOD, DOD through the PPBE process, has really narrowed the kind of execution flexibility that, that it has now, and there's a really good report out, out on this just in the last couple of weeks from George Mason University, such that you know th- those individual line items in the budget are incredibly narrowly tailored, and there are many, many, many more of them nowadays than there were in, let's say, the 50s and the 60s. So that can't help but complicate the audit picture a little bit, I think. But I, th- I think a lot of it really goes back to the issues that we were talking about before, the complexity, 
of the department, the disparate systems and and, and the IT issues. And, and, and we got to keep in mind, IT is such a huge part of this. About half of all of those notices of findings and recommendations are just IT stuff. Yeah, well, that's an old story, I guess. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. You bet, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I re- realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.